Good morning, everybody. Well, let me encourage you, if you've got your Bible with you, to open it to Acts, the 24th chapter. We've been taking a tour through Acts, this section called Faith on Trial. And when the Apostle Paul completed his third missionary journey, ended up in Antioch, then made his way up to Jerusalem, he had no idea what lie in store for him. But uh, over the next few years, he would be called upon again and again and given the opportunity to share his story. It started when he was arrested in the temple courts in Jerusalem, and uh, a riot broke out. They almost beat him to death, and uh, he was rescued by the Roman soldiers from the garrison up above. They were hauling him up the steps when he asked permission to testify to the people below, and he did. He shared his story and pointed him to Jesus, these Jews who had almost killed him. And uh, they kind of went ballistic, and he is taken back up to the Temple Mount, Fortress Antonio, where he's about to be flogged, and he announces he's a citizen of the empire, and he has another opportunity to share with Lysias, the commander, and others his story and point them to Jesus. Now, in these three chapters that we're going to just take an overview of today, he has the opportunity to tell his story and point two governors and a king to Jesus. It doesn't appear that any of them opened their hearts and believed and received Jesus, they or any of the people with them at that time. But I don't believe Paul failed in any sense of the word. He was being faithful to consistently point people to Christ. And you know, when a person is presenting evidence in a court of law, and he was on trial again and again, uh, when they've presented their evidence, a lot of times, at least on TV, they'll say, I rest my case. Well, I think that's what Paul could do, and he could rest in the Lord once he had made the case for Christ in each of these circumstances. What I hope and what I pray that we can take away from this would be a couple of things. For those of you that are already followers of Christ, it's my prayer that you'll be inspired by Paul's faithfulness to consistently share the story even though he met resistance and people apparently weren't believing it. He continued to share it resting in the power of God to work out his purpose in the lives of the people who heard that story. And if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Christ, it's my prayer that, that you will take this as a warning and an encouragement not to procrastinate or put off a decision for Christ as these two governors and this king uh, that we'll look at did because that would be an eternally tragic mistake. So there's some principles I want to set forth, and here's the first one. Point people to Jesus, and some, like Felix, postpone any decision unwilling to alter their lifestyle. So Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem. He's held there in the Roman garrison on Temple Mount. The commander, Lysias, gets word that there's a plot to kill the apostle when they take him back down to the Jewish ruling body, the Sanhedrin, uh, 
So he gathers 470 soldiers and uh, smuggles Paul out of Jerusalem 9 o'clock at night and has him taken down to Caesarea on the coast and delivered to the governor, Felix. Now Felix then calls the people from the leaders of the Jews down to Caesarea and here comes Ananias, the high priest, along with the elders and a high-powered attorney named Tertullian. And so they convene the trial, and uh, Tertullian, the attorney, he makes his case. He flatters the uh, governor first and says all kinds of niceties about him, which was customary, but he went overboard. You, can, you should read it in its entirety. And uh, then he starts making charges against the Apostle Paul, and all the other Jews are joining in on that. And then Felix gives Paul permission to speak, and Paul thanks Felix for being the ruler of their nation for a number of years and said, I cheerfully, I cheerfully make my defense. He said, I'll admit I'm a follower of the way, which these people call a sect, but I want to tell you, I have served God and I believe in everything that is set forth in the law and the prophets, believing as they do in a resurrection of the, of the righteous and the wicked. And then in verse 21, he continues, For the resurrection of the dead I am on trial before you today. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So Felix actually had enough information to make a decision right there. He could have done it, but he was unwilling to do it. He wanted to defer to Lysias, the commander from Jerusalem, when he would come down. There's no record that he ever invited Lysias to come down over the next couple of years. And so Felix was postponing and uh, too busy just to get around to it and to making any kind of a decision. In verse 24 it says, But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present. And when I t find time, I will summon you. Here's this governor listening to this prisoner talk about righteousness and the judgment to come, and he gets scared. Well, he had reason to be. I mean, if Felix were a contemporary, he and his wife, Drusilla, would be on the cover of National Enquirer in the, no in the checkout stands at the grocery store. I mean, he had caused all kinds of gossip and scandal. Uh, Drusilla was a beautiful young woman. She'd been married at 14 years of age to a low-level politician. But when Felix saw her beauty, he lured her away from that guy and had married her. And uh, they were the talk of the town. And now he's convicted about his lifestyle. But he's unwilling to do about it and says anything about it, it says, when I find time, Paul, I'll call for you. Get out of here. In verse 26, at the same time, too, 
He was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. He was a corrupt governor, received bribes all the time, and he enjoyed his lifestyle as this politician. It says, therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with Paul. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Two years went by. It says they conversed regularly. And that word really means they had intelligent dialogue. Think of it. Here's this governor talking regularly to probably the greatest defender of the Christian faith who's ever lived. Uh, I mean, he hears all about Christ and the theological basis and what the prophets had said and how Christ fulfilled all of that. And yet, he came to no decision. Why not? Because he was unwilling to change his lifestyle. He would procrastinate and postpone and not ever, according to what we know, make that decision. That happens all the time with people. Mark talked about this play coming up, The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. A couple of years ago, we had a play produced by Mark, and it was wonderful. It was called Freud's Last Session, and it was a debate between C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud about the existence of God. And uh, one of the last things that C.S. Lewis says to Freud is urging him to consider the evidence. He said, this is too important of a question not to make a decision on. Well, I'd invited a friend to come who'd never been in a Christian church before. We met each other through golf and had gotten to know each other and have a friendship, and he came. And uh, we walked out of that play, and I said, so what did you think? And he said, wow, it's really true. I said, what? That it's too important of a question not to make a decision about. Well, it's been two years. He still hasn't made a decision. He's a good man. I like this guy a lot. Uh, I'm going to invite him to the last days of Judas Iscariot. But there are things in his life where he's busy, he's got other concerns, and he's postponed a decision. And I don't know if you're in that position, but I'd encourage you not to make that mistake. Because Felix was convicted at the time, but I think later his heart hardened. And that can happen with us. When the Holy Spirit speaks to us and convicts us of our sin and our need for a Savior, that's the time to make the decision. Because it's like later on, you think, well, I'll wait until later. Later on, you may not want to make that decision because the conviction is no longer there. And so like Felix, don't postpone. Don't procrastinate the most important decision that you could ever make in your life. Secondly, point people to Jesus, and some, like Festus, defer to others' opinions, unwilling to personally expend the effort. Festus is now the governor. He succeeded Felix, and he doesn't waste any time. Three days after he's installed, he makes the trip up to Jerusalem, calls the leaders together, and talks to them about the case of the Apostle Paul. No doubt they've asked him to come. But they urge him to bring Paul from Caesarea up to Jerusalem 
for a trial. All the while planning to ambush him along the way and kill him. So the governor goes back to Caesarea and he's speaking to the Apostle Paul. And it says, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Well, Paul knew that if he were to go back to Jerusalem, he may never make it there. He may be killed along the way. And if he did make it there and stand on trial, with the trumped-up charges they had against him about defiling the temple, he knew he'd be executed there. And so he exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. Sometimes Christians wonder, um, as a citizen, can I stand on those rights even as a... Of course. And especially if it furthers the cause of Christ, as Paul knew it would here, because he knew the Lord had told him he wanted to send him to Jerusalem. So King Agrippa uh, is in Caesarea, and now uh, he comes up to see the governor to welcome him to his new position. And King Agrippa, who's a Jewish king, he's been placed there by the Romans, he actually has authority to appoint the high priests. He and his wife Bernice come up to meet Governor Festus and they're talking story. And Festus tells the king, Agrippa, about the prisoner, Paul, and the story about him. And it's fascinating, his explanation of it. And I want you to notice how confused this governor is about the prisoner that he's holding here. He's talking to Agrippa about the Jews. And he says, when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about, look at this, a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. It's obvious Festus doesn't get it. He thinks that the Jews... And Paul just di di disagree on whether this dead man is alive or not. He doesn't understand that Paul is asserting, oh no, he, he was dead, but now he's alive. And so it, it's obvious that Festus had not even explored the case enough to understand what was really being stated here. He hadn't invested the time or the energy to get a grasp on the gospel as Paul was setting it forth. People do that all the time. They say, I'm not a believer, I'm not a follower, and yet they've never really looked at the evidence, haven't taken the time or expended the energy. For many years we've had uh, a prayer breakfast here in Honolulu. They used to call it the governor's mayor's prayer breakfast. Now, um, separation of church and state kind of terminology, they've called it the Hawaii prayer breakfast. But uh, years ago, it's always held at the Hilton. 
there was uh, governors, mayors, prayer breakfast, and they invite uh, governors, mayors, politicians, city council, and they're honored. The military is honored. Uh, they put these politicians up at a long table, and some of them are given the opportunity to say a prayer or to read scripture. And some of them are devout Christians, believers. And of course, uh, folks in the community bring folks to hear a great message from a Christian, a testimony, and there have been some powerful ones. Well, this particular year, uh, I looked at the um, program and saw that a particular mayor was scheduled to give the prayer. Now, I knew that he wasn't a believer. Uh, his wife is, okay? And um, he wasn't there yet because he, he did an early morning radio broadcast. And just knowing this fella, I said, he's not going to just say a prayer. He's going to have to say something else. Uh, he's a real politician. Sure enough, he comes in late. Uh, they ask him to do the invocation. And he says, well, I was doing my radio show this morning. And I told him I was going to do a prayer here for Hawaii. And some lady said, well, you can't say a prayer that would satisfy Christians and Buddhists and Muslims. He said, but I can uh, and actually, I've written one, and I'm going to use that as my prayer this morning. And so he read that pathetic prayer, and I knew that he had just offended about 1,500 Christians that were there who believed that Jesus is the Son of God and the way, the truth, and the life, but he didn't get it. He could have asked his wife. He could have taken more time to investigate, but he was too busy and unwilling to expend the energy to do so. Many people are like that today, but you know what? If you're not yet a follower of Christ, not a good excuse. There's an abundance of material that's available. Start with the Bible, but there are hundreds of books now that are available that clearly set forth the case for Christ. That's the title of one by Lee Strobel or Josh McDowell, or C.S. Lewis, or, or Ravi Zacharias. I mean, look at the evidence before you make a decision and take the time because it's worth it rather than putting off that decision. And for those of you who are followers of Christ, sometimes people will say, well, I don't know the answers to give to an unbeliever, and so you're a little reluctant to talk to unbelievers. That's not a good excuse either. Talk to unbelievers. Find out where they're at, what they believe. And if they ask you a question you don't know the answer to, confess that. I don't know the answer to that, but I'll find out. And you will. And you can research it, and we'll talk to you, and there's good material available. And then you'll be better equipped to love unbelievers and interact with them and make the case for Christ. Point people to Jesus. And uh, that's what the Apostle Paul was doing here, even though Festus was unwilling to expend the energy to investigate himself. Third, point people to Jesus, and some, like Agrippa, buckle to peer pressure, unwilling to risk their reputation. Well, Agrippa heard about this prisoner in the story, and he was familiar with Judaism, he was familiar with this sect called the Way. It had been in existence for about 30 years now, Christ had been crucified and resurrected, and the church was exploding here in Judea and uh, even beyond. And so he said, I want to hear this man myself. Festus said, that's a good idea because I need to send him to Caesar, and I need to know what to put in the letter. You just don't say, 
I'm sending you up here, but I don't know what to say. So he said, you can listen to what he has to say. Help me compose this letter. So it's an informal setting, and the king says to Paul, you're permitted to speak. Paul raised his hand, it says. Now his hands would have been manacled, and so he would have raised them, and chains would have been on his hands. And he said uh, that he felt fortunate to speak to the king because he knew the king was familiar with the ways of their religion. And he said, I beg you to listen patiently. He said, I stand here today testifying before the great and the small. The room was filled with that whole entourage of the king and of Bernice and uh, the folks with him. And Paul said, I want you to know that the prophets and Moses have said that Christ, the Messiah, would suffer and rise again, and that he's appointed me to be a light to both Jews and Gentiles. In verse 24 it says, While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And now the prisoner becomes the prosecuting attorney, and he's asking the questions of the king. Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Now there are a lot of scholars, and I would agree with them, that say that's not exactly the correct translation of that. In the King James Version, it's worded like, Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. That's not it. The wording here in the context indicates that this was a sarcastic and cynical response from the king. In essence saying, Paul, do you think in such a short time you can convince me to become a Christian? It seems as though Agrippa was embarrassed. Put on the spot. And he may have been looking out of the corner of his eyes and seeing Bernice, Governor Festus, and others there. It's like, oh man. And he bailed out buckling to the peer pressure rather than acknowledging, yes, I believe the prophets, and I believe Christ could have been. He did not make that declaration. Even though sermons have been written, and even an old hymn, Almost Persuaded, that says that uh, he almost was, I don't think he was there yet. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. So the real issue was Agrippa was embarrassed, put on the spot, and unwilling to take a stand for Christ. We can cave into that as well, can't we? That kind of peer pressure. In fact, uh, it's been called middle school mentality. Nobody wants to stand out. I mean, if, if some of the girls are wearing that, guess what my daughter wants to wear? Or what, I don't have a daughter, but my granddaughter, she's a middle schooler. Um, that's a mentality that boys and girls and adults can have a problem with. We can have a problem with it 
in our workplace or in our families in taking a stand for Christ when it might not be popular to do so. Peer pressure is really powerful. You know, in the sports world, in the NBA, there was a basketball player who played for 15 years. His name was Rick Barry. He was out of the University of Miami. And uh, he had a percentage through those 15 years from the free throw line, 89.9%. That's unheard of. Well, the reason he did was because of his method of shooting free throws. He'd stand at the line, take the ball, and do like that. It's called a granny shot. And uh, he was really good at it. Mark's a physics uh, teacher. You know, physics teachers studied that and said that, um, yeah, makes sense. There's fewer things that can go wrong when you just do that rather than this kind of a shot. Well, Wilt Chamberlain, who played in the 50s and early 60s, I mean, he was an amazing basketball player, but he was a poor free throw shooter until he adapted that style. And one night in 1962, he scored 100 points. It set a record. He used the granny shot, and he made 28 of his 32 free throws that night. Shortly after, he abandoned the granny shot and went back to his old style and went back to 52% in his free throws. And hardly anyone, if anyone, uses that today. Shaq could have used it. But why don't they use it? One sportscaster said, because players are too embarrassed or too proud or both. It looks silly. And most players would rather miss shots than look like a granny and score more points. And I think that many of us would probably miss the opportunity to share Christ rather than look out of place sometimes or be labeled a Jesus freak in the company that we keep. There are some notable exceptions in the sports world or in academics, in the university settings where it can cost you your job, certainly your reputation. There are some notable exceptions among uh, politicians and celebrities, but many people will just go along with the crowd. And what about us as ordinary people? We have an opportunity, and our reputation with Christ is much more important than with those around us. Now, each of these three, the governors and the king, apparently rejected Christ. At least at that time, didn't receive Christ. You might have thought that Paul would have been disheartened by that. I don't think he was. I think he knew that he'd been faithful to point them to Christ, and he could rest in the Lord's plan and power. That leads me to this. Point people to Jesus and rest in the Lord's power and plan to accomplish his purpose. After Agrippa's response, it says, The king stood up, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him, and when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, Paul did what he knew the Lord wanted him to do, faithfully testify and trusting himself to the Lord and these people to God's plan. That's what you and I need to do. If you're a follower of Christ, share your story. 
Point people to Jesus, no matter the response. If there's no visible response, trust God's power to work in that person's heart and life in his time because he's the only one that can convert a person and bring a person to faith. Build a relationship with that person, share your story, and rest your case. Rest in the Lord. Let me close with another sports story. If you're a golf fan or you pay attention to sports at all, you'd know that last Sunday... Jordan Spieth won the British Open. It's called the Open. Uh, it was an amazing comeback, just incredible. This young guy turned 24 this past Thursday, and he's already won three majors in all kinds of other tournaments and is being acclaimed as one of the greatest golfers ever. But when he won the Travelers Championship a month ago, um, they were talking about him and how... He had won something even more important, he considers, than a golf tournament this year. Because every year, the players in the PGA vote for the top 30 nice guys on the PGA Tour. And they have a criteria. It depends on the player's treatment of fans, on being a good role model, on how they treat the little people, and being nice when no one else is looking. Who came in first place? Jordan Spieth. Well, three years ago, Jordan established a charity, a trust fund, and it supports youth with special needs. His sister has special needs. Junior golf, military families, and a fight against pediatric cancer. Here's what Spieth says. When I look back on my life, what we accomplish with the foundation will be more important than anything I do in golf. He won probably 1.6 million last Sunday. Uh, he says this is much more important than the acclaim or the money. When he was presented with the claret jug, uh, which they give for the British Open, uh, one of the commentators said, with his name inscribed on that, with all those other great golfers, Jordan Spieth is now immortal. And I thought, Jordan wouldn't agree with that. Jordan's a Christian. Jordan knows it's not his name on that claret jug that makes him immortal. It's the fact that his name is inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life because he's put his faith in Christ. And he knows that as he uses his testimony and his platform to point others to Christ, that their names can be inscribed there too, and that makes all the difference in the world. That's much more important than anything he'll ever do on a golf course. And that's much more important than anything we'll ever do in life, folks. So we need to share our story and point others to Christ. And finally, if you're not there yet, don't be like Felix and procrastinate. You may never get around to it. Don't be like Festus and defer to others' opinions, unwilling to investigate yourself. Don't be like Agrippa, who was unwilling to risk his reputation to take a stand and make a decision for Christ. I urge you, um, make a decision for Christ while you have the opportunity. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for the testimony that comes down to us through faithful men and women, disciples, 
those set forth in Scripture and those recorded in history, and those who've spoken to us in our lives. And God, thank you for the story that you're making of each of our lives and the opportunity you're giving us to testify of your love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Help us to be faithful to do that. God, continue to speak to anyone not yet ready to make that decision that this is the day of salvation, that this is the day that she or he could and should make the most eternal decision they'll ever make. I pray that you'll speak to their hearts and that decision will be forthcoming. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.